Well, welcome to Grace. Uh, my name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, a few weeks ago, Des asked if I'd be interested in speaking, willing to speak. Uh, this week, he said I could speak on anything I wanted, as long as it had to do with Christmas. And so uh, I thought, well, let's pick one of the most overlooked passages that we can find in Scripture. Be and when I, as soon as I tell you what it is, you're going to go, that exists? Um, because we always skip right past this, all right? But this passage has to do with family. And as we enter into the Christmas season, uh, we all get to deal with our family. And with our family, some of us are going to groan. With our family, some of us are going to be really excited uh, because the family dynamic is so strong. I uh, was laughing last week, Aaron asked us to talk to our neighbor and say, what's your favorite Christmas movie, what's your favorite Christmas song, right? Everybody remember that? And uh, my favorite Christmas movie, please don't judge me, please don't send me hate mail, please don't, because some of you are really going to like this and some of you are going to go, what? National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I will not advocate for you guys to go watch it. If you don't watch it, I'm fine with that. Uh, it is a classic in my house. I may have just watched it. It's kind of a family thing here. We don't watch this until like Christmas Eve, but I may have watched it the other day when nobody else was home, okay? So... I mean, come on, it's classic Christmas. You've got Clark and you've got Ellen. You've got their kids, Rusty and Audrey, right? And so they are the quintessential family. Then you've got Clark Sr. and his wife, Nora. You've got Art and Francis and her bunions. Then you've got, you've got Uncle Louis and dear sweet Aunt Bethany. And then you've got the famous Cousin Eddie with his wife, Catherine, and then you've got Ruby Sue and Rocky. What a family. They are amazing. And you can see in this family all the dynamics. All the dynamics are there. You've got, you've got love for one another and you've got complete animosity towards the other. You've got tension, you've got grief, you've got sorrow, you've got happiness. And so this morning, we're going to talk about family and all that it brings into the Christmas season. We read in many parts of Scripture these things that we call genealogies. Name upon name, many times we skip over those names because we're sitting there going, why are they here? What's the point? Well, this morning we're going to look at some names because God is into names. You see, every name matters. Every name matters because every person has a name, every name has a story, every story matters to God. If you 
pain yourself and read through First and Second Chronicles, you will see name upon name upon name. But God said these names are important. These names take us through history. If you know my story at all, you'll know how I have dug into family tree just a little bit to find out more about my story. There's no list of names that's more significant than the opening page of Matthew. And uh, so we're going to take a look at that passage. And I actually said that to somebody this morning and, and they go, I just skip right past that. Uh, I start Matthew 1 at verse 18. Um, so we're going to focus on verses 1 through 17, all right? Just so that you guys can be pained with everybody else. So let's start. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you're going to notice as we put these slides up that I have taken out is the father of, is the father of, is the father of. I've just left the names because every name is important. So you're only going to see names with an arrow. All right? So we're going to take a moment. We're going to breathe. I'm going to breathe because I get to read these names. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Time out. Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob. Jacob had many sons, and Judah wasn't the first one. Reuben was the first son. In fact, there were three others before Judah came into the story. If you remember this story, some of you are going, I don't even know who you're talking about. Judah is the older brother of Joseph. Joseph and the coat, the coat of many colors, the amazing technicolor dream coat, whatever reference you have, Judah is one of Joseph's older brothers. And they had a lot of animosity towards Joseph because Joseph was the favored child. Joseph was the special one. And so the older brothers didn't like him. So Joseph goes out to meet them in the field, and as he's going to meet them, they see him coming, and they're like, let's get rid of this guy. Great family, right? Let's kill our brother. And instead of killing him, they go, you know what? Let's throw him in a pit. Let's just throw him in a pit, leave him to die. Uh, that way, you know, we didn't actually do it. Uh, you know, nature does it. Well, then Judah... Judah, who's in the line of Jesus, comes up with a plan and says, you know what, instead of walking away empty-handed, not getting anything out of this, let's sell him to a bunch of slave traders that are going to Egypt. Nobody objected. Nobody objected to the thing. Now, Reuben, who is the oldest brother, comes back. He wasn't there when the plan was devised. He comes back and finds out about it, and Reuben actually cries about it. Reuben was sad. 
So why isn't Reuben a part of Jesus' line? I don't know. But then it goes on, and that's all in verse 37. We jump up to, or chapter 37 of Genesis, we jump up to Genesis chapter 44, and it's talking about there's a famine in the land of Israel. So all of the brothers go to Egypt to beg of the prime minister of Egypt, oh, who happens to be their older brother or their younger brother, Joseph, and they don't realize it's him. Remember, they sold him to be a slave. And while they're in his presence, uh, things happen, and Benjamin, the youngest brother, is, is caught with some of the king's possessions. And so they're going to throw him in jail. And Judah, Judah says, no, 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 don't take him, take me. You see, I came up with this plan, and we sold our brother uh, to be a slave, and I can't, I can't lose another brother. Joseph, who is bilingual, but they don't know this, overhears this and hears Judah confessing what he had done. Joseph then reveals who he is, uh, if you know the story, Joseph reveals who he is. The whole family comes to live with them, and they're reconciled. God had prepared for all of this to take place. But why was Judah chosen instead of his three older brothers? We don't know. God simply doesn't explain why it was Judah. God just does it. As we go through this list, you'll see that Judah isn't the only one that's listed that isn't the firstborn. There's actually a few that aren't the firstborn. And so uh, I think God is just toppling the tradition of the Israelite culture, where the firstborn is the heir, and God is saying, no, 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 I'll do it my way. So then we read on in, in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, Perez, the fa father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Anybody see anything wrong there? I skipped a name. I skipped the name of Tamar. It says there at the beginning, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Who is she? Not only is she the first woman that appears in this lineage, she, there, she's one of five. She appears there and she's just recognized as the mother of Perez and Zerah. You see, Tamar was actually the daughter-in-law of Judah. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, yet his lineage goes through her. Anybody seeing that? 
this is the first part where you're like, what in the world is going on? So Tamar had been married to Judah's son, Ur. Ur died. In that culture, when your husband dies, uh, then you marry the next son. And so Tamar then remarried Judah's next son, Onan. He also died. Judah went, mm-mm, not losing a third son. She's not going to marry my third son. And so he left her out of it, and she was childless. Tamar was childless. And so uh, through time, Judah's wife died, and Judah is now a widower, and Tamar sees an opportunity here, present it that way, and Tamar dresses as a prostitute outside the temple and seduces Judah to sleep with her, and she becomes pregnant. Now, during this time, when this all happens, she actually says to Judah, give me some of your personal possessions because he promises her, I can't pay you for this. Again, messy, messy time here in Jesus' family history. I can't pay you for this. And so she says, give me something so that I know and I'll give it back to you when you pay me with a goat. When Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, not knowing that, he, that she was the prostitute, Judah is so mad, he commands to have her burned. Burned. She produces his personal items, and he is beside himself. He actually then says, she is more righteous than I. This is the first woman that appears in Jesus' lineage so then in verse 5 we go on Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth two more women in Jesus lineage that were pointed out Uh, Rahab the prostitute who saved the lives of the spies when they came into Jericho and we'll talk more about her later and Ruth who was known for being faithful. It goes on, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. King David. We love King David. Actually, we know that in the story, Uh, Jesus will come from the house and the line of David. We know that David also was not the firstborn of his family. He had older brothers. We know this because uh, he was out tending the sheep when Jesse got word that, hey, we're going to anoint a new king, bring all your sons, and we're going to look them over. Jesse left David out of it 
the youngest, he's going to leave him out because he's kind of the, the runt of the litter. He's not the most worthy. But David is then anointed to be the future king. David who killed the Philistine giant Goliath. David who was best friends with the king's son. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the one who slept with one of his general's wives. The man after God's own heart who then slept with one of his general's wives who then also through that line comes Jesus. Why doesn't Matthew name Uriah's wife? We all know her name is Bathsheba. Why doesn't he name her? Is it to point out the sin, the indiscretion, the, the guilt that David would have had in this? The fact that it didn't all go to plan? We don't know. We don't know why Matthew pointed that out. Maybe it was because of all these women, none of them were of Jewish heritage. Jesus came for all of us, not just the Jewish nation, but the Gentiles as well. So now, here we go. We're at verse 7. Wait until you see these on screen. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. I think it's really interesting here that Matthew pauses to acknowledge the point in Jewish history where they are sent into exile in Babylon. Because you see, this was a time of great sorrow, a time of grief, a time of despair in the Jewish nation. The people had turned away from God. They were under oppression. I think we can all relate to what the Jewish people were going through because we all have sorrow in our backgrounds. We all have grief. Some of that may be big. Some of it may be a little more trivial. But we all understand sorrow and grief. Nobody would expect the Savior of the world to come out of that kind of sorrow. But he does, and that is what our hope is, not only in this season, but all the time as we look to Jesus. So then going on in verse 12, I promise we're almost done with the names. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, 
Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob. There are nine names in this that we have no other reference in Scripture to. There are nine names in that list that there's no other reference in Scripture to because we know absolutely nothing about them. But those nine names covered about 500 years of history. Those nine names lived during the time that they would know as God was silent between Malachi and the New Testament. We know very little. So what was God doing during that time? We don't know. We do know that those names mattered to God. Those names mattered to God enough that he told Matthew, when you're writing this down, put these names in because they are important to me. Every person has a name, every name has a story, every story matters to God. A lot of times we look at this, these 15 verses, we'll round out with 16 and 17 here in a minute. We look at those first 15 though as they're just flyover. I'm just going to skip this uh, because what's it have to do with me? It has to do with us because it shows us that every family has a mess. And every person has a story. Some good, some bad. In verse 16 we read, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. 42 generations represented in 15 verses that made up the lineage of Jesus. As we go through this, I'm going to give four points um, four things that I want us to take away. And the first one is that God's ways are unexplainable. God's ways are unexplainable. Why did he use Judah? Why did he use Tamar? We don't know. God doesn't explain why some people always have the good luck and some people seem to always have bad luck, right? Right? God doesn't explain why in a family that, you know, everybody has the same genes, uh, this person has a bunch of cavities and this person has none and I can't stand them. Right? I mean, come on. Of all the things, why can't we all share that? God doesn't explain why he chose your parents to have you and doesn't explain why you're in that family. But God does and has planned what country you would be born in. God did plan what year you would be born and what the time would look like that you were living. God planned that you and I would live in a time with cars and automobiles and electricity so that we can actually live in Arizona and have air conditioning. God planned that 
because he set all of this up so that you would see him at work. He prepared every circumstance so that you could see and experience him. Second thing is that God's plans are unstoppable. God's plans are unstoppable. As you read through this passage, there were many in God's lineage that, or Jesus' lineage that tried to stop the message of God. Jesus wasn't ashamed of his ancestors. Jesus isn't ashamed of you, isn't ashamed of me. God's plan was unstoppable. As we read through those and I highlighted the names in verses 13 to 15, names that we know nothing about, they were unknown. God knew them. They carried on the message of God in some way because Jesus would be born from that family. In verses 9 through 11, we read about Hezekiah and his son, his grandson, his great-grandson. And to give a little more perspective on who they are, King Hezekiah was a great uh, king. And he tore down all the shrines that were in Israel and focused on worship of God. He focused Israel to worship God. Then his son comes along, Manasseh. He builds all the shrines and idols back and says, we're not worshiping God. We're going to worship all the idols. And then at some point in his life, he turns and says, no, 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 no. Let's get rid of all the idols. Let's worship God. Dude, what are you doing? But then... Amon, his son, ignores his father's repentance and chases the idols again. Amon reigned just two years as the king. And then his son Josiah comes along. Josiah becomes king when he is eight years old. Eight years old, he removed all of the idol worship removed it all. He actually goes in to renovate the temple. And when he goes to renovate the temple, he finds the books of the law. And so he reinstates what it means to follow God and starts the feasts again so that the people come back to God. We have a believing father to an unbelieving son that then became a believing son to an unbelieving son and back to another believing great grandson following God is not something that is passed down from generation to generation it is the grace of God that saves any of us or our family members salvation is not inherited you cannot get by from the faith of your parents the faith of your grandparents the faith of your great grandparents you have to make that decision yourself. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a word of caution to parents, to, 
to grandparents here a little bit. Because I, I've seen this in many years of ministry, youth ministry, uh, ministry. Do not take the blame for the unbelief of your child. Don't take the blame for the unbelief of your child, but also don't take the credit for the belief of your child. Don't take the blame for the unfaithfulness of your child. Don't take the credit for the unfaithfulness of your child. We can be grieved if our child doesn't follow God. We should be grieved that anyone decides not to follow Jesus. But it, it's not our fault. But just the same, and this is actually more dangerous, you cannot take the credit for the faith of your child. You cannot take the credit because I've seen this. There have been books out. If you do these four things, if you do these five things, your child will follow after Jesus. And it's just not true. It's dangerous to say that. Our faith is a personal decision. We each and every one of us have to make that decision for ourselves through the grace of God. If we look at a couple other names here, Uzziah, Uzziah was a great king. He had victory after victory after victory. He became king when he was just 16 years old and he reigned for 52 years. He followed God. But something changed during his reign. You see, uh, he had, like I said, victory after victory. He was an amazing leader, and people told him that. People were in his ear, man, you are amazing. You are great. God is using you. You are the best. And he starts hearing this over and over and over and turns himself away from God because he becomes so proud. He becomes so proud of who he is that he actually enters into the temple and says, hey, step aside, priests. I'm going to burn incense myself. Only the priests got to burn incense in the temple. And they were fighting him. They were arguing with him. And he was insistent on, no, let me, let me, let me. And as he's arguing with them, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. And he's ushered out of the temple immediately and lives the rest of his life in disgrace. Satan is looking for what you will be baited by. Satan is looking for something in your life that for Uzziah, it was, look how great you are, look how great you are, look how great you are, and it was pride. And he just kept doing it and kept doing it. And finally, Uzziah bit and lost everything. Satan has baited his hook for each and every one of us. What will pique our interest? What will, what will get our attention? And Satan is very patient. 
he is the greatest fisherman because I tell you what, if I'm not catching something within three minutes, I'm out. But Satan will bait and bait and bait and wait because he knows that he's going to get you somehow. Don't believe that your testimony is secure. Your salvation is secure. But it doesn't mean that your testimony is. We can never coast. We have to be on guard at all times. Dependence on God never goes out of style. It actually says uh, God's mercies are new. When? Every morning. God's mercies are new every morning because he knows we used them up the day before. And so he gives us his mercy again and again. Third thing is that God's plan is unconventional. God does things in ways that it's not the normal way. I mean, if we were to look at Rahab, Rahab, who was known as the harlot, right? In scripture, whenever we say Rahab, we follow that up by the descriptor of Rahab the harlot. Rahab didn't just pretend to be a prostitute like Tamar had. Rahab was a prostitute and probably owned the brothel because the spies went to her place because they knew that they would not be questioned as to why they were there or who they were. Nobody was going to question them. Yet God uses her, and I'm not going to get into this whole story, but God uses her in a mighty way to save the people of the Jewish nation and then her faith. In Hebrews 11, the book of the hall of fame of faith, we see her name listed. But it's still listed as Rahab the harlot. How would you like to go through life being referred to as Rahab the harlot or whatever it is? And I bring her up because it doesn't matter what your story is. God can use you and God has a plan for you. I don't think a lot of us can relate to the faith of Abraham or David. But we can all identify with Tamar and Rahab as sinners. As those who have fallen short. There are so many ways that we see God's plan in our lives that are unconventional. And I often say this to couples when I'm doing wedding planning or during a wedding. Uh, we're just a bunch of stories that are coming together to make one story. And it's not just this moment. It's all these moments that are a part of your story. That's what God is impressing on us here. These are all stories that add up to who Jesus is and who we are. A few weeks ago, Des uh, got to have the opportunity to have the Olvey family on stage as they dedicated little Lily into their family to raise her up in a Christian household. The Olveys are helping to write Lily's story in the midst of their story, their story that has pain and heartache in it. 
but they're giving hope to Lily. And we had the opportunity to sit down with the Olvies a couple weeks ago, and we want to share their story with you. Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm Bray. And this is something that's unexpected that happened to us. Yep. Liza was born September 2020, and that was, um, she was our first child um, born to this world, and she was absolutely incredible. We had 11 wonderful months with her, um, but in August of 2021, um, she got sick with what we thought was a stomach bug, and unfortunately, it wound up being something much more serious, and she unfortunately passed um, that weekend. The morning of August 8th was a Sunday, and one of the last things that we did with her was sat and watched church and played worship music, and just knowing that she was going to go home later that day, but it wasn't going to be home with us. After Eliza's death blindsided us, we took some time, but ultimately we knew adoption was the path forward. Adoption plans, things just didn't turn out, things were disrupted. We were feeling, things looked pretty bleak for us. We just weren't sure if we could go through with it. Probably around June 2023 we were saying if it doesn't work out by Thanksgiving we're gonna to have to really reconsider or even give up and then the next month I mean might maybe even a couple of weeks later we get a call saying there's a baby girl waiting for us at a hospital and that's how we met Lil so when we got a text message on July 11th saying there was a baby girl born this morning. Do you want to present to her birth mom? We said yes, but tried not to get our hopes up because it, those are the situations where you, everybody wants in, right? Every family is going to want an immediate situation. The next day I felt it really weighing on me again. Um, and so I just stopped and prayed Lord, if this is the child that is meant to come home with us, please make it abundantly clear because I don't know how much longer I can do this. And not two minutes later, my phone rings. And it's someone from the agency says, this, uh, this birth mom has chosen you and Taylor to parent her little girl. How fast can you be in Phoenix? And everything moved so fast after that. Seemed like an utter blur, just immediately both of us rushing to the hospital, meeting with the agents at the in the lobby, and in no time at all we were just we were holding this very small little girl on our hands. She was not even five pounds. And just it felt like everything shifted. Lily was born a month early, and so she needed to stay in the neonatal intensive care unit for 18 days um, to get stronger and be ready to be home with us uh, without any supports. That was a very difficult process for us. Uh, having gone through losing Eliza in, in an ICU environment, um, but we knew that 
Lily was in really good hands um, at this hospital and we knew that God had her and we just sat and prayed with her every day. Um, I knew she was going to be okay. After 18 days, she got to come home with us. It was really wild for us going from, I don't know how much more of this I can take, to how fast can you be at the hospital? You know, um, within four or five days of each other. Um, and it just really shows that you never really know what plans God has in store. Can you thank Bree and Taylor for sharing their story? <clears throat> One of the things that Bree said there at the end was you never really know what plans God has in store for you. Lily's story, the Olvi's story, is unconventional, out of pain and heartache. They have they're writing a new story. Lily is a part of their story. I can't wait to see how they impact her life in the coming years. That brings me to this final point. The final point is that no one is unlovable. No one is unlovable. If if you know my story at all, uh, you'll know that this passage uh, has a little different meaning to me now just because I've done a lot of work on my family tree uh, to find out that, that uh, I wasn't the youngest of 10, I'm the youngest of 16, right? Um, crazy. Um, and in that, Looking at name after name after name, I realize that no one in that is unlovable. Everyone has a bit of a story in it. As we look at this passage, we see that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David. Another 14 generations from David to the exile. Another 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. 42 generations, and there are all these stories that are wrapped up in that. Jesus was unexpected to come the way he did through this family. They knew that he was going to come from the house of David. They did not expect this to be his story. Jesus came for each of us because no matter who you are, no matter who your family is, no matter what you've done, no matter what your family has done, and no matter what's been done to you, and no matter what your family has been through, Jesus loves you, has a plan for you. Some of you need to put your past behind you. Some of you are struggling with things that happened years ago, decades ago, 
in your family that you need to put behind you. I didn't say this in the first service, but my mom held on to a secret for 47 years and actually would have continued that because there was so much shame and guilt in her life. Some of you are dealing with that same thing. Some of you are dealing with something that happened to you or something that you were a part of years ago and you need to get rid of it. Because it's not healthy to hold on to it. Some of you need to put your pride aside. In whatever it is, I can do this on my own. I can get through this. And you need to give it to Jesus and allow others to walk alongside of you. Some of you need to allow yourself to just acknowledge that you need a savior. You need Jesus because you cannot do it on your own. I know that as people head back home for Christmas or family comes in for Christmas, it can be a stressful time because family can be stressful. Some of you need to give that to Jesus. This Christmas season, will you allow the Messiah, will you allow Jesus to save you? Will you allow him to show you that there is a better way? I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come down and some of you need to give it to God. Whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever it is that you're holding on to, you need to give it to God. And you need to do it with someone because you cannot hold on to this on your own. Some of you are holding on to secrets that have been secrets for years. Give it to God. Some of you are dealing with pain because you've been told, you've been told that you're unlovable. And it's just not true. Jesus loves you more than you know. He loves you so much that he not only humbled himself to become a man, he then humbled himself and took on the cross to bear all of our sin, all of our pain because he loves you. No one in this room, no one in Tempe, no one in Arizona, the world is unlovable. God loves you. God has a plan for you. God wants you to know you are loved. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you this morning knowing that our stories sometimes are just twisted. 
But God, we see in the story of Jesus' family a story of hurt, of pain, of sin. And we see that you still loved us so much that you used that family to bring a savior to the world. God, I pray this morning that we will give over some of our hurts. God, I pray that we will be able to give up those habits that just continue to hold on to us. And God, I pray that we can get over some of our own personal, our personal pride issues and give it to you. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name.